If you have a Bible today, if you will take that Bible and turn to uh, Psalm 129. We're still in the, the book of Psalms. We are looking at an individual psalm today, an individual song. It's called a song of ascent. It's when you're walking up to Jerusalem. And uh, we're, we're way into this, about the 10th uh, psalm. It started in Psalm 120, and we're working our way up. Fifteen psalms actually used three times a year when the, the Israelites came to Jerusalem and they walked up the hills to Jerusalem and they walked into the city and they began to worship the Lord. And it was a call to worship. It was a call to, to come back to the Lord. It was a call to understand that God had a plan for them and that God said, you, uh, there, there's so much more. You were made for more than what you have. Today we're looking at, at, at a topic called the ultimate survivor. The ultimate survivor. Now, when we use survivor today, our, our, our whole uh, nomenclature, all of our words have been changed around because of a silly television program called Survivor. Anybody here ever watch Survivor ever in your life? Okay. Anybody here ever watch every episode of every season of Survivor? Actually, I have my hand up because I think I have. I hate to admit that. I mean, it's a, it's a crazy show about people being voted off the island. I always watch to make sure that I haven't been voted off from the church uh, survivor. But you know, that's not really what surviving is all about. I, I go to the hospital and I go to the oncology department and I see survivors. I see someone who has been given the, the diagnosis that they may not live and they're surviving. I, I think of people like in 2002, Elizabeth Smart was kidnapped from Salt Lake City and she was held for nine months. Did you notice a few weeks ago she got married? She's not just a survivor. She is a, a more than that. She's a, a crusader. She's a conqueror. Or J.C. Dugard, who was held captive for 18 years, had two children from, from the result of that captivity, uh, multiple rapes, and, and yet that woman has somehow found some normalcy in her life, and those children are being raised, and they say the teenagers are actually remarkable, no, remarkably normal, and, and they, they've been introduced to a, a whole normal life again, and she's, she's more than a survivor. She's the ultimate survivor because she decided that she was not going to let someone else ruin her life, and she decided to go on. So my question is, in the big scheme of things, are we just kind of kicking along in life? Are we surviving? Are we, are we conquerors? Are we surviving? Or are we the ultimate survivor? Are we surviving? Or are we in this race of life? Are we winning the race? Because Paul says, I'm pressing forward, and, and I want to win the race. Look at Romans 8.37. Paul is writing here, and he's writing to the Roman church, and he knows that the Roman church is going to have all kinds of persecution, and he says, in all these things, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And the Greek word conqueror there literally means one who survives tremendous pressure and comes out better on the other side. You are, you, it's like you've been pressed into this mold, and instead of being, being subject to that mold, you've come out on the other side, and you're this conqueror. What things? He goes on in verse 39 and following to say, Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Folks, I'm here to tell you, God does not want us to eke out a living. He does not want us to squeak by. He does not expect us just to say, oh, well, I'm doing the best I can under the circumstances. God has called us to be champions. God has called us to be crusaders. God has called us to be conquerors for Him. Jerry Falwell, 
used to say that at Liberty University, what they were doing is they were training champions for Jesus Christ. And the truth is, that's what we're all supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be in training as God's champions. And you say, Pastor, I just don't see that, and I certainly don't see that from this psalm. Ah, I'm glad you said that. Let me show you what I found here, okay? God doesn't want us just to get by. He wants to empower us to be victorious. What does that mean? Look at Psalm 129, verses 1 and 2. It says, and I guess where I'm going with this is champions finish. Champions finish what they start. Look at what it says, verses 1 and 2. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say, now that's a musical thing. We've just done a bunch of music. And a musical thing is when you've said this phrase and you go back and you say, let Israel say, that's when I said, church, sing it out. That's what I'm saying. Hey, church, sing it out. That's what he's saying. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. But they have not gained the victory over me. Champions finish what they start. What does that mean? Well, number one, God promises opposition. God says you will have opposition. Eugene Peterson, in his, uh, in his paraphrase called The Message, said, they kicked me around ever since I was young. They kicked me around ever since I was young. Is that true? Has Israel been kicked around? Is that true? Let, let me tell you something. Satan hates Israel. Satan absolutely hates Israel. If you do not believe it, I want you to go home. Here's your assignment for the afternoon. Read Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 shows this, that Satan absolutely hates Israel. And if that's not good enough, a week from tonight, I'm going to start a series of messages on the book of Revelation, and I'm going to show you how Revelation applies to everyday life. Now, one of those response cards that somebody filled out, and they put their name, and they asked for that, I'm going to start doing that next Sunday night, a, book of Re- a, a, a series on the book of Revelation. We'll take a chapter a week, uh, and we're going to spend some time, and we're going to have a great time seeing what God is telling us from the book of Revelation. But Satan absolutely hates Israel. Uh, a, a great man of God by the name of James Montgomery Boyce once said this, the Jews are the longest enduring distinct ethnic people on the planet. They've been slandered, hated, persecuted, expelled, pursued, and murdered throughout their long existence, but they have survived intact. An, another great Bible scholar, Derek Kidner, says this, whereas most nations tend to look back on what they've achieved, Israel reflects here on what she has survived. We've been kicked around. We have been, we've been put down. We've been oppressed from our youth. And you say, well, we see that Israel's like that, but we're not part of Israel. Is the church any different? Uh, we were looking in the class 101 this morning in Matthew 16, 18. Jesus is speaking to Peter, and he says, I will build my church. And what does he say? And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Well, who's, the, who's in charge of Hades? It's Satan. Satan not only hates Israel, he hates the church. Hebrews 11, 35 through 38, in the, in the first part of Hebrews 11, it talks, it's, it's what we call the chapter of faith or the hall of faith. And it talks about Abraham and David and Moses and these people that were great, great people of faith and, and how God blessed them. But when you get to the end of the chapter in Hebrews 11, it says they were tortured, flogged, chained, imprisoned, stoned, sawed in two, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. You want to sign up for some of that? Well, you did when you became a Christian. Because look at what 2 Timothy 3.12 says. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, In fact, 
everyone, most everyone, most of us, some of us, part of us, no, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And you say, well, I haven't been persecuted yet. Just wait. Just wait. Especially the way our nation is going right now, you just wait. It will get worse before it gets better. You need to pray and need to understand. Our faith will be blasted. Hebrew, the Hebrew word there, sarar, for opposition or oppression, is an unyielding pressure. It's a pressure that just will not let up, and it, and it gets tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. It's basically the way I feel when I put those uh, seat belts on and you go on a long trip and it just cinches a little tighter and a little tighter. Have you ever gotten out of the car and realized that you're about turned halfway around because the thing just keeps getting... Is that just me? Don't you love those things? I love those seat belts. Okay, not really. I grew up before seat belts. We didn't do that. Our faith in Jesus Christ is not fragile, though, folks. Our faith in Christ is not demanding perfect conditions to grow and to flourish, is it? Does your faith in Jesus Christ, when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, did you say, well, it's, you know, we got to put them in a greenhouse, we got, we got to make sure they have enough water, enough sunlight, and everything's just perfect for them, or they'll never grow. Is that the way your life went? When you came to Jesus Christ, when I came to Jesus Christ, you know what I faced immediately? Almost immediately, I had Satan out there, and I had Satan's cohorts, and I had people saying, yeah, Christianity, that doesn't work. Wait until you mess up the first time. You're not going to make it a day before you mess up. And the truth is, we won't make it a day before we mess up. In Acts, the more the Roman government persecuted the church, the faster it grew. And when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, for the first time, you're not going with the flow of, of, of everything that is against God. And when you start going the other direction, you will face opposition. That is a part of the life. And I'm tired of Christians getting up and pastors getting up and evangelists getting up and saying, if you come to Christ, everything's going to be great and everything's going to be smooth and everything you ever pray for, you're going to get. That's not true. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says in this world, you will have trial. You'll have trouble. Jesus says, if they hated me, what makes, they think, what makes you think they're not going to hate you? And we've seen this proven over and over and over again. I went to Russia in 1991. In 1991, Russia, uh, the USSR had not fallen yet. And when I was there, after 70-some years of, of oppression, we found an underground church that was massive and powerful. We've seen the same thing in China. We're seeing the same thing now. Wherever they have outlawed the gospel, we're finding out that where they try to stamp out the gospel, God says, that's where I will build my church. God promises opposition. But champions finish what they start, so God offers, also offers victory. God offers victory. If we're not careful, we focus on, on just the bad news, right? Don't we just focus on what we expect to happen? Um, I ran across, I, I don't know if you use the little daily devotional that we have, Indeed magazine. Uh, the Indeed devotional, is, it's free. It's out there in the foyer. And I ran across the one for Saturday, and this is what it says. Expectations are tricky things. As soon as we get our minds or our hearts firmly fixed on something, whether it's tantalizing menu item that's no longer available, have you noticed that? As soon as you find something at a restaurant you like, they take it off the menu. Is that just me? Don't you hate that? I go to them and I say, just make it anyway. I don't care if it's on the menu. No. 
whether it's a tantalizing menu item that's no longer available or a choice work opportunity that fails to materialize, we set ourselves up for disappointment. When we decide what is best, we judge anything other than that to be less than desirable. But the answer is not to avoid longing, to abandon striving, or to become numb and indifferent to loss. The answer is to hold our expectations loosely, believing that God's surprises, even the most confusing ones, have the deep capacity to delight, and that maybe, just maybe, we don't know best what it is that we need the most. We don't know best what we need the most. Oh, that can't be. I know what I need. Sure you do. The Lord says, I've got something better. I have victory for you. We, we focus on all of the obstacles. We focus on the opposition. On the way back from, from Kansas City, I went to see my mother last week. And, and by the way, thank you for praying for me and for my mom. She's had a series of small strokes. Uh, she's lost most of the memory of the last few years. She does have Alzheimer's. She's getting along quite well. She's living with my brother. So thank you for, I, I, I say that so I don't have to say that 200 or 300 times after the service today. But thank you for the prayers so much for her. Uh, some of the terror that she's been feeling has been relaxed a little bit now that she's living with my brother. But pray for my mom in, in Kansas City if you don't mind. Her name is Juliet. She would love for you to pray for her. But when I was coming back from, from Kansas City, uh, I, I, I did the direct flight from Kansas City to Houston to San Francisco to uh, Reading, you know, the direct flight there. And I got to, to Houston, and I realized that my flight from Houston to San Francisco was already delayed by 35 minutes. Now, when you're in Houston and it's already delayed 35 minutes, what that really means is there's no chance that you're going to make your connection. And so I immediately went to the people at United, and I said, there's an earlier flight to Houston. I have a great plan. Get me on the early flight. And she said... Oh, dear, that's not going to happen. She said, we oversold that one by 17. I said, okay. So what are we going to do? And she said, quit focusing on the obstacles and let me give you a solution. And she found out there was a later flight. I knew there was a later flight from San Francisco to Reading. And she said, here's what we do. You're in seat 3B. I'm going to put you in seat 3B again. That's on one of the puddle jumpers. You know, it's, it's not like I'm riding first class. This is when you have 30 people on a, on a plane. She said, you're in 3B. You'll still be in 3B, but you're going to be on the late flight. And I said, what's the chance that I will make that early flight? And she said, oh, there's always a chance. And when I walked away, she laughed. And when I got to San Francisco, I had missed my flight. But she had taken care of me because she had the solution. All I could focus on was the obstacle. And God says, I, you look at the obstacle, you look at the opposition, and I have the solution. I have the victory for you. Psalm eighteen seventeen says, He rescued me from my powerful enemy. It's not just a missed flight. It's, it's a life that you're going to miss if you don't come to Him. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. And if you go on to verse 19, it says, He rescued me because He delighted in me. We think of God snatching victory from the jaws of defeat, but that's not what it is. It's not that God comes up with this last-minute plan. He knew before I ever got to Kansas City that there was going to be a delayed flight and that He knew that there was a woman that if I would go to that counter, that He would take care of it if I would just trust Him. He knew all of that. And God says, I have a plan from the very beginning. And he's given us so many examples. I, I, I think of a story that Frederick the, uh, about Fred, Frederick the Great. He was the king of Prussia. 
He became skeptical and unbelieving uh, uh, about Jesus Christ, about, uh, about so many things. Voltaire, the, the, uh, the rationalist skeptic, kept coming to him. And so one time, uh, finally, Frederick the Great came to his chaplain, and he says, if your Bible is really true, I want you to prove it. And he says, I'm tired of these long arguments, because the, the chaplain would come in, and he says, I think it should be a very brief proof. In fact, I want you to prove that the Bible is true in one word. Just give me one word that will absolutely prove to me that the Bible is true. And the chaplain said to Frederick the Great, one word. He said, Israel. And Frederick the Great thought for a minute, and he acknowledged that God had taken care of Israel in spite of everything possible done to try to eliminate them from, from existence. You see, God has given us example after example after example that God is going to take care of us when we trust Him, when we wait on Him, and we have to come to Him and find that out. God promises opposition. God offers victory. Uh, look at the next two verses. Champions learn. Not only do they finish what they start, but they learn from experience. Champions learn from experience. Verse 3 says what? Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long, but the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. We learn from experience. What does pain teach me? Have you ever been in pain? Have you ever experienced pain? Absolutely. If you, if, if you're, if you haven't experienced pain, you're not alive, uh, or you have leprosy, unfortunately. That, those are the two options. The language seems very strange here because he's talking about pain. He says, it's like someone has taken this plow and plowed up my back. Now, as Gary pointed out, and, and again, Gary, great job last week. We appreciate you, my brother. It's great to be able to, to leave and have someone fill the pulpit, pulpit as Gary did. But he pointed out that this is called poetry. You know poetry? Not poetry like Mary had a little lamb. She put it on the shelf, and every time it wagged its tail, it spanked its little self. That's... That's the poetry I know. There's one about Mary, the lamb being between two slabs of bread, but I'll, I'll save that one for later. That's not the poetry. It's, it's poetic language, and, and what he's saying here is it's a description, it's a vivid description that there's pain in their life. It's like their back has been torn up. What does that mean, from beating? If you think of the description of when Jesus Christ was beaten, it was like the, there were these long furrows because as the whip would come and it was leather and it had bones and metal in it and it would just chew through the skin and, and through the muscle and leave this long furrow across his back. And in fact, there are some who have, have gone and used this very description of Jesus when, when he was beaten, when he was going to the cross, he was beaten and, it, and it's as if his back was plowed. It's a systematic torture. The Jews didn't endure it for a day or a few hours. They endured it for centuries. What did that teach them? What it, teach, what it teaches them and what it teaches us is that even when Jesus was being beaten, God was still on the throne. What we were singing about, that God is still sovereign, that God is still in control. And you may have come today and you've, you may be saying to yourself, there is no way... If God were still in control, my life would not be where it is right now. I would not have experienced the loss. I would not experience the pain. I would not experience this. And God says, I am trying to teach you about who I am. Look to me. Trust me. Depend on me. Love me. God always keeps his promises. God always keeps 
His promises. I want you to go with me back to Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30. I want you to read just a couple of verses with me. Because when Israel was experiencing all of this pain, some of it was because of some things that they had done on their own. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1 says, when all these blessings and curses, what blessings and curses? When you get to the end of Deuteronomy, as we're reading through the Bible together, if you've gotten to the end of Deuteronomy now, as I have, what you finally realize is Moses, before he dies, stands up before the children of Israel and says, listen, for 40 years God's been trying to get your attention and he's given you all of these outlines. He's given you these promises. He's given you these instructions. And then he goes back and says, when all these blessings and curses I've set before you come upon you and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. Wait a second. They're just getting ready to go into Israel and there's a prophecy that they would not listen to God and because of it, God would disperse them. Look at verse 2. And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where He scattered you. Folks, one of the reasons I love to go to Israel today is when you go to Israel and you ask the people, where did you come from? So few of them were born in Israel. They were born in the United States or they were born in Russia. They were born in Germany. They were born in France or Belgium. They were born all over the world and they have been gathered back. And it's just the beginning of what God has planned because one day God says, my plan for Israel will be completed and all of the nations from everywhere out of them will come 144,000 Jewish evangelists to the Jewish nation that is scattered around the world and God will bring Israel back to the land that He promised them because God always keeps His promises. And just like He promised them, when we go through the battle, when we go through the warfare, when we go through the pain, God says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And God says, you can call on me, and I will answer you, and I will show you great and mighty things. God says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and your mind cannot comprehend what I have planned for you, what I have in mind for you. God said, if I go and prepare a place, I will come again. I have to tell you, every morning when I wake up, I'm a little disappointed that, that the trumpet hasn't sounded, that he hasn't called me home that I haven't got to see the promise fulfilled. But one day, if I don't die, one day the Lord will sound a trumpet and I will go to be in His presence and He will meet us in the air and it will be a reunion like you've never seen a reunion. God always keeps His promises. Some pain has nothing to do with disobedience, but it still teaches us to trust God. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 10 says that even as a father sometimes disciplines his child, there are other times that pain, because of sin, because of what happened with Adam and Eve and what's happened with each of us since then, there is pain and there is death and there is disease, and it is a part of what God allowed when we said no to God. But it still teaches us that there is a God and there is a perfect standard, and He has a plan for us. Look at what uh, James 1, 2, and 3 says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of, of many kinds, and literally it's like a rainbow, whatever hue it is, of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops endurance, perseverance. And God says, I want to develop that perseverance in you. 
Here's the second one. Not only pain is teaching me, but how is the Lord training me? What does pain teach me, and then how is the Lord training me? And he says, if you go back to Psalm uh, 129, if you go back to the psalm we're looking at, in the second part it says, the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. Literally what it says, that he has shredded the harness of the wicked. He has shredded that harness. Beth Moore says that the plowed backs of the oppressed become fertile ground for God to cultivate his seed, and his seed is God's word, and the, and the, the garden that comes up is the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. God uses that very pain, the things that, that, the, that Satan meant for evil. It happened with Joseph. Satan said, I'm going to take Joseph, God's chosen, one of God's chosen children, and I'm going to throw him into Egypt, and I'm going to throw him in prison, and I'm going to have him go down, 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 down. And the Lord says, I'm going to lift him up, 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 up. And after 17 years, God used Joseph. And Joseph says, what, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. God trains us, and He teaches us. And I think the greatest place that we see that is Hebrews 12. I want to look at that. How is the Lord training me? I want to show you three things out of these two verses, how God trains us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, again, I think that's Hebrews 11, all that's gone on there, the great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Have you ever run with something that entangles? I was running, uh, thinking that, I, that maybe I could make that flight when I got in from Houston to San Francisco, and I found out I came in at gate 80-something, and I was supposed to be at gate 30-something. Don't you love that? Just the numbers tell you this is going to be a long way. And I went running, went running from one end of that place to the other, and, and all the way through that. And I was not in running shoes, and I was in blue jeans, and I, and I had, because I'm cheap and I didn't want to pay to, to check the baggage, I had two bags, as big as they would allow me. So I had one bag in one hand, and I was running as far as and fast as I could. You know how fast you can run with two big pieces of luggage? Not very fast. People were passing me with strollers. I saw that it was not a good scene. I was easily entangled, and I thought, I'm going to break my, break my neck. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and then let us run with perseverance, endurance. The way the Lord trains us, first of all, is to get rid of those things that are, that are, that are extra baggage that we need to get rid of, those sins, those things, maybe even good things that, that just hinder us from doing the work of the Lord. And then he says to, to develop endurance. You know, you don't do that the first time you go out to exercise. The first time you go exercise, you don't go run a marathon. The first time you exercise, you go in, to the mailbox and back. And then you hope you can get down to the corner and back. And eventually you're running maybe a mile and, and you build up the endurance. And the Lord says, I want you to start small in faith and walk in faith with me for just a minute or for a, an hour or for a day before you try to go a week. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. When I was running through that, that terminal trying to get there, I had one objective. I knew my gate. I knew where I was supposed to be. And I, I had my eyes fixed on that sign telling me where I was supposed to go. And that's how the Lord trains us. He says, I want you to get rid of those things that hinder. I want you to develop endurance. And I want you to keep your eyes focused on me. That's how the Lord trains us. Here's the last one. Champions commit everything to the Lord. 
Psalm 129, verses 5 through 8. Champions commit everything to the Lord. Verse 5, may all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. Whoa, wait a second. Literally, let all who hate Zion be humbled, embarrassed, shamed. May they be like grass on the roof with, which withers before it can grow. With it, with it, the reaper cannot fill his hands, nor the one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. I think we find two more things here. First of all, be passionate for Christ. You commit everything. The words, again, are startling. They're, they're scary because it says, I hope they all embarrass themselves. I hope they all make fools of themselves, literally is what the Hebrew is saying. Uh, I hope that they're ashamed of who they are, and they're like grass that grows up in the crack of a sidewalk or that gets somehow in the, in the, in the gutter in your, in, in, along your eve, and as soon as the sun comes out, it withers, and it's not worth anything. It's called an imprecatory, an imprecatory psalm. About, uh, I think, 15, 18, 18 imprecatory psalms, 65 verses where literally the psalmist, the writer, says something about someone else because they're in pain. God never says we shouldn't do that. God never says we shouldn't do that. Perseverance is not resignation. It's not putting up with the status quo. It, we're clearly to oppose evil. We're to vocally point out danger. And that's what he's doing. We're to be passionate. And you say, well, wait a second. Doesn't it say in the New Testament to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself? Yeah, that's actually taken from Leviticus 19, 17, and 18. Jesus is quoting Leviticus in, New, in the New Testament. In Proverbs 24, 17, it says, don't gloat when someone stumbles. Don't make fun of them. So it's in the Old Testament, but there are also times when we see evil that we need to call it evil. And when someone is trying to tear apart the church, when someone is trying to tear apart God's Word, we need to call it what it really is. What kind of a parent would you be if you saw your three or four-year-old beginning to wander out into traffic and you didn't scream at them and say, stop? I mean, we even do that for our dogs. What, what kind of a person would we be if we saw someone that's going over the edge of a cliff and we didn't try to stop them? What kind of a person would we be if we saw someone driving and we knew the bridge was out and we didn't try to warn them? What kind of a person would we be? We would be too much like too many Christians today. In Genesis 39.9, Joseph is faced with this. Uh, Potiphar's wife keeps coming to him and saying, come on, lie with me. Just have this adulterous affair. And look at what he says. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. And then look what he says. This, is, this has got to be offensive to her. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Joseph does not mince words. Folks, there are some times that we need to stand strong. I ran across, as I, as I got back, I ran across something on crosswalk.com, and actually it was on Facebook. It's called Something Deadly This Way Comes, After Birth Abortion. The debate over abortion, this article says, comes down to one essential issue, the moral status of the unborn child. Those making the, the case for legalization of abortion argue that the developing fetus is not a moral status, has no moral status, and it would not trump a woman's desire to abort the child. Those arguing against abortion 
do so by making the opposite claim, that that unborn child, precisely because it is a developing human being, possesses a moral status by the very fact of its human existence that would clearly trump any rationale offered for its willful destruction. Let me put that into words that, that we all understand. What they're saying is, is that fetus a, a child, a baby, a moral being or not? That's the whole argument. They try to cloud it with other things. Now, folks, we need to understand something. In the, fa in the last few years, something has happened. Uh, and a professor, Alberto Giblini of the University of Milan and Francesca Minerva of the University of Melbourne and Oxford University now argue for the morality and legalization of afterbirth abortion. They're saying that the child, because the child still cannot make moral choices, it's okay to kill that child. And they're taking after uh, Dr. Peter Singer of Princeton University, who has argued for some time that killing the, an, unborn baby, uh, an unborn child is no different from killing a child that's one year old. Do you understand what's being said? Now, I try not to take political stances, but I'm going to tell you right now that I also ran across a connection that Peter Singer and these guys that, that, have, just been, that have just been quoted, the two, the two professors, are quoted in the people who are giving our president his information right now about abortion. And if there's one issue that we need, need to vote on when it comes time to elect a new president and new members of Congress, it's this. If they think that this is okay, vote them out of office right now, permanently. We need to stand up and say it is murder. It is murder of our children. This happened in Germany, and, we, and the Christians did not stand up and say it. And look what happened to Germany. I'm of German descent. I will not, as an American, stand up and allow this to happen on my watch. We are against this kind of thing. And if that means that it's an imprecatory psalm, that's okay. We need to be passionate about what is right about what is just. And those babies cannot speak for themselves. We need to speak for those babies. Be passionate for Christ. And the last one is be productive for Christ. Like grass on the roof. The homes built in the Middle East had flat roofs and the seeds blew on them and sometimes they sprouted. But they're never considered a part of the harvest. If someone was going to evaluate how productive your life was for Christ, would they say that you're more like seeds that fell in a crack? Are they going to say that you're a beautiful, beautiful field that's been put out there with good fertilization, with good water, and that's, that's, that's ready for harvest? What would people say when they looked at your life? Psalm 1 makes the case for a, a person who delights in God's directions, and it describes him or her as a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season. Someone who makes a difference. Isaiah 61.3, look at what it says says, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. Would someone look at you and say, he's an oak or he's a shrub? He, she's, she's an oak or she's a, just a little spare piece of grass that somehow wasn't supposed to be planted there. Eugene Peterson has said it this way, discipleship is the process of paying more and more attention to God's righteousness and less and less attention to our own righteousness. And what God is calling us to is to pay more and more attention to his righteousness so we will be like oaks of righteousness. Oaks of righteousness, a planning for the Lord. Let me close with this. True story. 
My uh, daughter-in-law some time ago texted me. Our son Jonathan is, is writing music. He lives in Nashville. And one of the first pe- uh, people that he worked for was Amy Grant's stepdaughter. And Amy Grant's stepdaughter became friends with them, and they invited them over sometimes. And so uh, one time I was sitting there, and our daughter-in-law texted me, and she said, I can't believe this. I'm, I'm in Amy Grant's kitchen making breakfast. And I texted back, if you clean up well and hurry before the police get there, they'll probably never know. The truth is she'd been invited over, and they have gotten to know Amy Grant And as they've gotten to know her, they've realized that that this woman loves Jesus Christ and she loves the Lord, she loves her family, and she especially loves her parents. Both of her parents are suffering now from Alzheimer's. And she did an an interview just recently. And she described a, a time she was sitting down with her mother and it was getting time to go because she and, and Michael W. Smith, who wrote one of the songs that we were singing today, decided they were going to do another tour. And she said, now, Mom, I'm going to have to be gone on a tour. I'll be gone for a few days, and then I'll be back. And she said, really? What do you do on your tour? And she doesn't remember. Amy Grant, singer. She says, well, Mom, I sing. She said, I didn't know you sang. And Amy could have said to her, Mom, do you remember all the times that you carried the guitar and you helped me set up the keyboard and the times that we went from little town to little town and little place to little place? But her mom doesn't remember. And her mom sat there for a minute. She said, well, what do you sing? And she said, I sing songs about Jesus. She said, well, that's nice, dear. And Amy Grant gave her a kiss and a hug, and she said, well, I will be back. And as she got to the door, just as she was leaving, her mom said, Amy, She said, what? She said, sing songs that matter. Sing songs that matter. And Amy Grant said that from that depths of a a foggy place, somehow God allowed her mother to give her the most important directive she could remember her mother ever saying to her, sing songs that matter. And my directive to you today is live a life that matters for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. What an awesome God you are, Father. You've called us to come to worship. You've given us psalms that, that reflect your desire for us to come to know you, to love you, to worship you. And as we do that, Father, we miss so many times the things that are important there, to be trained, to live through the pain, to learn from the pain, to grow from the pain, to be trained to be champions for Jesus Christ. So, Father, may our lives, may our words, may our actions, may our love matter for you. Because we need you, Father. We cannot do this without you, Father. We want to be champions for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.